Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 102nd edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, a digital forensics, cybersecurity, and information technology firm in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is internet defamation, what lawyers need to know. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsor, We'd like to thank our sponsor, PINow.com. If you need a private investigator you can trust, visit PINow.com to learn more. Our guest today is Joe Meadows, a former DOJ attorney and current partner with Bean, Kinney, and Corman in Arlington, Virginia. He focuses on internet defamation, cyber attacks, and business dispute litigation. In his 20 years of practice, he has tried cases before judges and juries, arbitrated commercial disputes, and argued trial and appellate matters in federal and state courts. It's great to have you with us today, Joe. Hi, John. Hi, Sharon. Thanks for having me on your program. Well, we're delighted you're here. And Joe, we go back a little bit together. You might explain to our audience how we know one another. Sure. We worked on an ABA expert witness article. It was called Responding to a Cyber Reputation Attack, a Game Plan and a Digital Forensic Expert. And after we worked on that article together, we've uh, kind of collaborated on anonymous online def- defamation cases, and I've been grateful to use your guys' forensic investigators. Well, that's, that's great. So how did you get into this particular practice area, Joe, and what are you doing now? I mean, this whole cyber stuff certainly is, is hot, and it's, it's fairly new. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It started with a jury trial back in 2011, and it was in a completely unrelated area of the law to what we're talking about today. I was working with David Hammond, a good government contracts lawyer at Curl and Mooring, and he asked me if I knew anything about defamation and suits against unknown John Doe's. And as any good junior lawyer speaking to a partner knows to do, I'm sure I said, absolutely, I know all about that. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> but actually, I, I can't remember what my response was to him, but I agreed to help him out on a matter. It blossomed into a full-blown John Doe defamation case and uh, actually continues on to this day since 2011. But because of that one case, I really got interested in the issues and became a a resource on defamation and John Doe defendants and have handled a number of related cases ever since then. Today, I'm with the law firm of Bean, Kenny, and Corman in Arlington, Virginia. It's a full-service firm serving the D.C. metro area. I'm helping them grow their own practice of defamation and cyber attack matters on both sides of the V, plaintiff or defendant. And we like to defend names, brands, and reputations where we can. Well, I think the first thing that I would want to know, if if I didn't understand the subject, is how do you define Internet defamation? It's a good question. It's one that I'm asked quite a a bit, but it's a simple answer, really. It's, It's defamation in the 21st century. So the first part, defamation, what is defamation? 
It's the publication of a false factual statement tending to lower one's reputation to a third party that was made either negligently or maliciously and causes harm. The 21st century element of internet defamation brings into you know the the hot issues today that deal with John Doe anonymous defamers brings in the the informality of the internet forum and whether or not that would transform a statement of fact into a protected opinion it brings into play where one may sue or be sued for defamation if a negative statement was just posted online and it also brings in issues that I know websites and social media and internet service providers are are interested in, how they may or may not be responsible for defamatory statements. Well, I tell you, Joe, you know, with, with all the social media and, and, and internet activity going on, you've got to be a really, really busy guy, <laughs> certainly. <laughs> I am. I tell you, I've got, um, you know, I've been developing a lot of new cases and making a lot of new connections. I get emails and and calls all the time and you know a lot of them are ones where for economic reasons we're not able to do a lot because these folks are um, you know they're in situations where they've kind of reached their plateau and what they're able to do legally the, the law doesn't provide any extra remedies for them in the civil context and sometimes i have to let them know that uh, that might be something they need to talk to law enforcement about or even work with forensic investigators uh, like like yourselves. Well, are there are there any particular issues, Joe, that the lawyer should should be watching out for? Well, in this internet defamation area, I'd say we're we're really dealing with all of them because we're dealing with the complexities of the First Amendment. And I have to say, as an aside, I hated constitutional law in law, in law school. You had to read way too many cases. Did you hate it more than math? <laughs> uh, I actually liked math. See? Uh, but, but, the, but the sitting there and reading of these old, old cases where you didn't have a codified set of rules and it was all uh, common law rules and structure was, was not interesting to me, at least in law school. But I guess I don't mind it now. <laughs> well, that's good considering what you chose for a career. <laughs> Yeah, but I guess for purposes of our discussion and your listeners, I, I would I would single out a couple issues that really lawyers need to think about if they're in an internet defamation type of matter. And the first issue is defamatory impact. For a defamation case, you have to have a statement that has a defamatory impact, meaning it lowers the estimation or view of someone in the community reflects shame or disgrace upon them. And if you have a statement that is accusing someone of committing a crime or engaged in immoral or unprofessional conduct, you actually have a a subcategory of defamation called per se defamation, and that can sometimes lead to automatic damages. But if you, you know, in the defamatory impact issue here, if you just have statements that are embarrassing unpleasant, annoying, or something that is pure opinionated, that's that's usually not defamatory and courts are gonna quickly throw out your case if you're gonna if you're gonna file one. I'd say that the second issue that is of particular interest for purposes of our discussion is malice is a big issue. Malice means that you have to prove defamation by clear and convincing evidence that a statement was made with knowledge that it was false 
or that the person who made it made it recklessly disregarding its truth. Now, this issue of malice only comes up when the defamation plaintiff is a public figure uh, or an official. I mean, you can think a, a politician or a celebrity. They, they, they have a higher standard when they bring defamation case, cases. But if you're a private individual or you're a private company and you aren't out there thrusting yourself into the the, the public on a public controversy, then you only need to show that a defamatory statement was made negligently. Those would be probably the two issues. Yeah, and, I, and I'm sure people also would, would add to that that they get confused about where you can sue or be sued for Internet defamation, particularly in, in, a, in the digital era. You're absolutely right, Sharon, and I've seen a, a lot of cases recently uh, on that exact issue dealing with personal jurisdiction. So here you are with an Internet defamation case and the complexities of the First Amendment and complicated issues dealing with malice or you know, um, dealing with defamatory impact. And oftentimes the decision comes down to an old-school concept of personal jurisdiction, whether a court has the ability to grant relief against someone who may be from – um, out of state. So, you know, I oftentimes tell folks that before you invest time and money pursuing a defamation case, you want to make sure you're not going to get tossed out on a technical jurisdiction ground. I read a case, it was called Hearts with Haiti in Maine. It was, it was filed in 2013. It went to trial in 2015. A jury awarded the plaintiffs over $14 million dollars at the trial level. But in 2017, the First Circuit dismissed the case on jurisdictional grounds. So here you had these defamation plaintiffs and their lawyers investing time in a uh, defamation case that I believe was born out of uh, emails, and they got a great result only years later to have it completely vacated uh, because they, you know, the, the, there was a jurisdictional defect to the case. So, So for at least... When we're talking about where you can see someone for internet defamation, the location jurisdiction rule that I often you know, follow is sue the defendant in their home state for an individual that may be where they're domiciled, for corporations where they're incorporated, or make sure you sue the defendant where you know they purposely directed their statements, which that's where I've been seeing a lot of this in the case law, this purposeful direction concept gets a little tricky, though, with internet defamation when someone is simply posting something online. Just the mere posting online is not going to subject the poster to the jurisdiction of each state where that, where that information is read. You need a little bit more, like the poster uh, traveled to that jurisdiction, did business in that jurisdiction, or made other statements or references that were clearly directed uh, at the state where the, the case was, was filed. Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. 
Welcome back to the Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is Internet Defamation, What Lawyers Need to Know. Our guest is Joe Meadows, a former DOJ attorney and current partner with Bean Kinney and Corman in Arlington, Virginia. Joe focuses on internet defamation, cyber attacks, and business dispute litigation. So I don't know about you, Joe, but I am always ruled by deadlines. So is there a time limit for filing a defamation lawsuit? Sharon, it's basically, and and this would be the same in any kind of civil litigation, it's the statute of limitations that's going to govern your claim, and that's going to be different from state to state. They are, for defamation as opposed to other claims, pretty short. Most jurisdictions say you have one to two years from the statement's publication or the injury to sue for defamation. In the Internet defamation context, the limitations period can can restart, however, if it's republished in, in a different internet forum. The interesting issue in this area is where you have later online publications that are tied to an earlier online publication, and then when does the limitations period begin? Some jurisdictions say that the the later one is tied to the earlier one, so you start with the earlier date. Some jurisdictions have not gone that way yet. And to even complicate the matters further, a later republication may never be tied to an earlier publication if it's materially different in some respect. But the general rule is um, if you're representing a client, don't even get messed up in these issues. Avoid the complication. File your suit as soon as you can. (laughs) That does seem the simple simple answer for a client, right? (laughs) Well, well, Joe, there's a lot of things that that happen in, in cyber, and and they, uh, I know when we get Sharon, I get pretty juiced up when we read some of these uh, uh, security reports, and and but the term that's always there is trending. You know, phishing emails are are trending upward or whatever. But is, is there anything that that you're involved with with in in your your cases and your activities that that you would would say is is basically trending cases? Well, I, I do follow the trending cases quite a bit, and there usually is something coming out every single day. I've been following the trending cases like the, the pedo guy defamation suit against Tesla's Elon Musk. Johnny Depp has a defamation suit against his ex-wife. That's in our kind of uh, backyard of Fairfax County here. You've got the summer Zervos and, da- and Stormy Daniels defamation suits against the president. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, it keeps going. You've got don't go there. What, what, st- just just don't go further into that. Oh, one. No, well, I'll go. I'll, I'll tell you what. Some of these, though, they without getting into the uh, either the politics or the sensationalist facts that come out, they all do raise really interesting legal issues. The the Johnny Depp case. Putting aside the facts of that one, that raises personal jurisdiction issues. The case is in Virginia, but both Depp and his ex-wife are from California. The cases involving the president uh, deal with presidential immunity. So the president says he's immune from that uh, in his position as president. That's going to probably go up to the New York highest appellate court. The Daniels case, that raises choice of law issues. I blogged about that one. This one's interesting from a choice of law aspect in that uh, Stormy Daniels filed her case in New York. That case then transferred – that court transferred the case to California. The California court then applied New York procedural law only to determine 
whether New York or Texas defamation law should apply. And in the end, they decided Texas defamation law applied. But, I mean, you know, they, they do really raise interesting issues, all of them. So what's, what's the one major case in this area in the past year? Well, it's not going to be one of the sensational uh, presidential Johnny Depp or pedo guy cases. That's not the one I would pick. <laughs> I would pick I would pick the Yelp case out in California. It's, it deals with Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which generally provides websites uh, immunity from defamation liability. It, it started with a lawyer, Don Hassel. She had sued her ex-client, Ava Bird, for defamation. Bird had posted negative statements uh, about Hassel's legal service on Yelp. Bird never defended against the suit at the trial court level, and Hassel, the lawyer, obtained a default judgment. In that default judgment, Hassel included language uh, requiring a, a takedown order against Yelp, who wasn't even a named a party in the suit to remove the defamatory posts. Yelp then got involved, appealed, that went all the way to the California Supreme Court, and the California Supreme Court agreed with Yelp that under Section 230, Yelp was immune from that takedown order. Hassel then appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and only in this January, the U.S. Supreme Court denied cert. So where that leaves us is the controlling highest um, court in California decision. It was a 4-3 plurality, so that kind of tells you that these issues are decided at a very close level. And that, and that court basically says Section 230 provides very broad defamation liability for interactive computer users, which means under the statute, internet service providers and websites who really serve as a conduit for other people's statements. Yeah, that's that's been in the news a lot, just what's going to happen with all that when they're a conduit. Yeah, and, and the real problem with that is, while I get that from the side of the the websites and you want to encourage freedom of uh, speech and on, on the internet, for someone who's a victim of defamation, the defamed, whether or not they have a true effective remedy if they cannot get a takedown order for something that has been adjudicated defamatory. That's kind of um, the two issues that are competing right now. Well, well, Joe, you know, I was kind of hoping that you'd talk about some of the juicy stuff, but uh, are there any other issues? Oh, I can. If you'd like me to, I can. I can get into it. Sharon said no, so I guess we have to listen to that. Um, but but are there any other any other issues that you're currently following? There are. It's, it's really what got me into this case when um, David Hammond had asked me to look into John Doe anonymous uh, defamers. And so I've kind of become someone who really is interested in that area and the First Amendment issues surrounding somebody who wants to remain anonymous yet speak online. Uh, from a, a legal uh, perspective, the standards to unmask a John Doe vary from state to state. They vary within the federal and state court systems. This is yet another area where the U.S. Supreme Court, like Section 230, has uh, not yet weighed in. Those standards generally have three common elements, the notice of your defamation claim to the John Doe. As the defamation plaintiff, you have to show some level of proof of the claim, whether it's a good faith belief in your claim or whether you have enough evidence to 
override summary judgment uh, with respect to the claim. And then as the defamation plaintiff, you have to show a legitimate need for Doe's identity that outweighs any First Amendment anonymity interest. If 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 all you want to do is unmask a John Doe, that's not going to get you very far in these John Doe cases. So from the legal perspective, those are kind of the main issues. From the kind of a forensic perspective, what I find interesting is working with folks like yourselves and trying to figure out, do we already have enough information in terms of the content or timing or method of the statement where we might know who this John Doe is? And as you guys know, you can use IP addresses, geographic locators, cookies, username tracing, and sometimes that can help you figure out who's uh, behind uh, someone trying to hurt you. Well, we always love the fact that uh, the, the people who do this kind of thing, the people who do anything that, that is online, think they're untraceable. Um, and there, there's a great deal of satisfaction in proving them wrong. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> and, and as long as those people exist, we're, we're going to have a job. So I'm okay with that. <laughs> well, keep up the good work. We're not quite as, as solid, though, as, as the, the caller ID yeah. used to be. So, But we'd like to have more more solid evidence. It's all it's fun. fun it's all fun. And it's fun to work with colleagues like you. So tell us, we always at the end here, we always kind of wrap it up with, okay, we're going to give you some tea leaves or some goat entrails or whatever you prefer and, uh, t- or a crystal ball, whatever you want. And t- tell us what you see in terms of future case development in this area. Well, I thought about that um, because I was expecting you to ask me something like that. I, I Probably three areas that I see there being some future development, and the last one that I'll tell you about is kind of way out there in the, in the more distant future. The first kind of two would be whether and how the Supreme Court is going to get into this Section 230 uh, website immunity from defamation. We are seeing more vocal critics of the breadth of that immunity. So we either will see voluntarily websites uh, amending their terms of service or otherwise agreeing to um, take down orders, or perhaps Congress is going to get involved and amend um, or revisit the Section 230 website so or a statute. So that, that'll be something that I'm, I'm looking for. I continue to think we'll see these personal jurisdiction cases continue to develop. I read a few months ago about a judge in Philadelphia, who requested the the high court in Pennsylvania to reevaluate the traditional venue rules in defamation cases in light of the internet and social media and technology of the modern era. So I I do think we'll see some more development of those cases uh, as we go forward. And I said the last one is something in the more distant future, and this deals with artificial intelligence. I I do expect at some point we're going to see the First Amendment law develop around artificial intelligence. As you know, artificial intelligence and speech in AI is developing rapidly. I read somewhere where experts are predicting that that, uh, by 24, AI is going to be translating languages. By 2026, AI will be preparing high school essays. By 2049, AI will be writing best-selling books. So that shows you how how rapidly that's growing. So we could even imagine a day when AI may sue and be sued in connection with its own non-human speech, and courts will have to contend with AI's claimed First Amendment rights. And I know it's a little creepy, but I can kind of see this becoming reality someday. 
Well, they'd have to make a more European European Union kind of, um, you know, rights and responsibilities and et cetera for AI, because uh, in this country at this point, uh, we would have to sue the person who produced the AI, not AI itself. But I can see the day. You're exactly right. But I can see the day coming, Joe. And and I promise you, if that day comes, we'll have you back for round two. (laughs) I'm in, but uh, I hope next time AI is not going to take my place, though. (laughs) Well, we could be interviewing Joe Meadows, the AI. That would be all right, too. (laughs) Right. We want to thank you, Joe, for being our guest. It's a, you know, this is a subject, of course, that we deal with a lot in digital forensics and tracking down where some of this stuff comes from is really, um, to, to us, of course, it's completely fascinating. Um, but I think it interests a lot of people out there because a lot of people find themselves, lawyers in particular, find themselves uh, uh, defamed on a fairly regular basis uh, and don't know what to do about it, don't know how it works. And you've given a very, very cogent and concise uh, explanation of all of that and, and so that's that's a lot of fun, and I hope we, we get to continue to work together for a long time. So thank you so much for being our guest today. Well, thanks, Sharon, and thanks, John. Uh, this has been fun on my end, too. Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or an Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and cybersecurity services at senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.